New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today I'm hosting Dr. Merlin Sheldrake, author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. Merlin, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thanks for having me, Justine. It's good to be here. Great. It's great to have you. In your book, you describe mycelia or fungal networks as ongoing happenings that are capable of sophisticated behaviors that encourage us to think in new ways about what it means for organisms to solve problems, to communicate, to make decisions, and to learn and remember. So why and how are these networks important to life on Earth? There are so many ways. Some of these fungi decompose the organic material that would otherwise pile up kilometers deep on the surface of the Earth. And so we live and breathe in a space that decomposition leaves behind. And this is a very important process. They, they turn the carbon cycle and they, you know, composers make, all organisms make, but you can only make if something else has been unmade. And so fungi do that unmaking. And we, of course, other organisms do too, like bacteria, but fungi are prodigious decomposers. They also form relationships with plants that sustain plant growth and sit at the bottom of the food chains that sustain all recognizable life on Earth. Uh, you have fungi that weather rock, that, um, that use acids and high pressure to mine the minerals in rock and whereupon it passes into the metabolic cycles of the living. So they're positioned at many of these uh, key junctures in the metabolic processes that shape the planet. It just reminds me, if, if all of that is going on, when we use, let's say, I think of those ads for Roundup where they say, okay, here you use this weed killer and it'll only kill the weeds, it'll only kill this and it won't hurt the soil. But is that really true? I think that's probably not true and almost certainly not true. You know, if These soil communities depend on different species of plant to be there. And if you restrict your plant world to a monoculture, you're also going to be restricting the microbial world underneath the surface of the soil. And of course, Roundup is only one of the things that sprayed. We spray um, fungicides, which will kill many of these crucial fungi. Um, so that's a, a disastrous idea. Um, and we spray uh, all sorts of pesticides, which disrupt the life cycles of pollinators and other key insect symbionts. So we're intervening in the system without understanding how and why. It's a bit like a child knocking down a pile of bricks. It's, it's, a, it's a very immature behavior, I would say. And ultimately disastrous. Absolutely, yeah. I'm thinking as you talk about pollinators, I'm thinking of the work of uh, Paul Stamets, who really helped us get in touch with mushrooms. He's just the mushroom king, so to speak. And he thought of something that was going to help bees from their colony collapsing. There's something that invades these colonies. Can you talk about what he discovered? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Paul's amazing. He's a big inspiration for me. I've known him since I was a teenager, and he's always been very encouraging of, of any fungal interests. He has these 
this amazing intuition and this amazing vision. And he put a few things together in his mind at one point. So they came together in his mind and he realized that these fungal antiviral compounds that he was producing, um, many fungi produce these powerful antiviral compounds, um, that these might help bees who are suffering from the viral pressure and these varroa mites, they're so-called the um, varroa destructor, these mites that live on bees' bodies and they are a vector for these deadly viruses that can just weaken the bees to the point where their colony collapses. So Paul partnered with the Washington State University Bee Lab and Steve Shepard, the entomologist there, and his team. And they've tested these antivirals and found that they do prolong the life of bees to an extraordinary degree and they can help alleviate colony collapse disorder. And so this might be a really major medicine for us and for all the other organisms that depend on bees pollination as well as for the bees themselves. I'm just reminded, uh, Paul had this aha moment about bees and colony collapse. And I'm thinking about those people. Uh, there's someone, McCoy, I can't remember his first name, who is encouraging amateur mycologists. Yeah, so this, you described this work of uh, Peter McCoy, who is a very amazing scholar and organizer and mycologist and he and some others started an organization called radical mycology and the idea is to help people to fall into new types of relationship with fungi to teach people how to work with fungi and, and to cultivate fungi without needing expensive kit um, and, and formal uh, laboratories and so this there's a big scene of diy mycologists and making contributions to the study of mycology overall you know because limited by the fact that they don't have big budgets and big labs, you have to find ingenious solutions to persistent problems. And there have been a number of such ingenious solutions that the DIY mycology scene has come up with. And it's a very exciting thing. Of course, the amateurs, but amateur that comes from the Latin word I love. So we use it sometimes derogatory, but really it's it's about passion and it's about commitment and and delight and curiosity. And so that's what I really feel in these in these mycological circles. So you said that they've come up with some things that are, are quite amazing. Can you name a few of those? One of the big ones was a way to inoculate culture. It's called the liquid culture, when you grow some types of mycelium in a liquid with nutrients in it. And the bane of all mycologists is contamination, because you create this nice environment for the fungus to grow. But Many fungus would like to grow in this environment. So, and you create a kind of biological vacuum, and given the chance, life rushes in. So, one of these innovations was a way to inoculate this liquid culture using a syringe and a modified mason jar without needing expensive sterile hoods, without needing um, other types of kit that you really would have a hard time without. So, this means you can do. No, quite sophisticated mycology in your kitchen, you know, just in the open air while you're doing other things. It, it really transforms what's possible. Peter McCoy describes it as lab results without the lab. I think that's the simplest way to, yeah. to frame it. Beautiful, beautiful. Somehow I'm reminded also of someone who discovered and turned in, uh, I think it was a mold that was on uh, cantaloupe. And that turned out to make a a less expensive way of making penicillin? It was a higher producing strain. So it was an American during the, the war when they were trying to find ways to produce larger quantities of penicillin from this mold um, that they'd found, that Fleming um, had found in, in the 20s to produce penicillin. And, and so they just needed to produce more of the stuff. And the mold that Fleming found 
wasn't producing enough. So they put out a call for civilians to submit mold strains. And, and Mary Hunt, I believe her name was, and she was a lab technician and she found this cantaloupe in the market in Illinois. And she brought it into the lab and it was this cantaloupe and Mary, Mary's find that um, provided this high yielding strain that was further augmented by rounds of mutation. But this was the strain that went on to produce much of the penicillin that that changed the course of the 20th century. So yes, it was a kind of crowdsourcing, microbial crowdsourcing. So if you talk about some of the innovations that are being done in using mycelium networks to actually build things, uh, can you name a few of the things that can be built? Yes, so a great variety of materials can be built using mycelium um, and other materials, wood or corn stalks. And you can build these mycelial composites, a bit like particle board, but without the poisonous glue holding it together so the mycelium grows through these sawdusts um, packed in molds and you can produce this very tough material so you can make boards you can make bricks you can make leather-like materials which are are very exciting Um, and you can make packaging materials which disrupt the plastics industry dell is shipping thousands of servers a year using mycelial packaging nasa are interested in using fungal materials to build structures on the moon it's a really fast-growing, um, literally fast-growing field, and one that is really exciting. And there's something called fungal architectures, where designers are even thinking about building a whole building made entirely of fungus. Yes, so using fungal building materials, but using these fungal networks as circuit boards so that the networks making up the building can be also used to conduct electricity and solve some computing questions and problems that be used in say pollution detection or or other kinds of sensing and it's a very brave and wild project that's going on and we'll have to see what happens but yeah exactly it's, uh, it's exciting yeah an actual living building most of it would be dead i think they grow the structures and then they'd kill it but they, they would be some living components i believe it's this a mixture of of living and, and ex-living and materials and isn't that all of life is that mixture of like inert material and growing connecting material? Isn't all of life like that? Absolutely. And our bodies are too. You know, when we make our bones, our, our teeth, for example, or our hair, these are produced by our body, but then they, they stop being living cells in themselves. Um, wood is similar. You know, the wood the plants make these cells and then they become tubes for water to shells of insects and crustaceans and um, mollusks we are always on this edge of of uh, life and non-life and you can actually think of these bone structures and tortoise shells as kind of domesticated mineral i like thinking of them as domesticated mineral i love that domesticated minerals you're giving us a whole new way of looking at non-human life as being embedded in us. And I think we're more bacteria cells than we are human cells, if I understand it correctly. That's correct, yes. How many more times bacteria, we're not sure, but we're certainly outnumbered by bacterial cells. Um, It raises the question of what we are at all. So we're just kind of a bacteria hotel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's certainly part of us, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So is there any advice that you have for us in the way of looking at all of this that's helpful and we might benefit from expanding our own view of these fungal networks and how they're supporting us? I find that these organisms help me and have helped me to 
to loosen the grip of some of my certainties because their behaviors are so surprising. It helped me to, um, to be comfortable in the space created by open questions. Um, and they've helped me to, to avoid rushing for quick answers, uh, to, to try and stay in these big questions and to let them pull you in new directions. And so I think learning more about the fungi can make the world look different and change the way we think. And certainly we do need to change the way we think about a lot of things. And so I think they have a lot of power to shape our growth and maturing as a species for sure. Thank you so much for being with us today, Merlin. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Merlin Sheldrake by remote from his home in London. He's the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, MerlinSheldrake.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Thompson. I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a 1,000 hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.